When I was a child, and uh, I believe I was probably five or six years old, I began playing t-ball, and uh, that continued during my childhood. I played t-ball, and then I played Little League, and I got pretty good at baseball, and um, I eventually made the all-star team, and I remember when I was 13 years old, I was kind of at the peak of my performance when it comes to baseball, and I made the all-star team, and we traveled a little bit, and I remember at the end of that summer, I decided that I wasn't going to play baseball anymore. I wasn't enjoying it anymore, and plus I was getting taller, so I decided that I was going to focus on basketball, and um, you know, I used to work out a lot, uh, lifting weights. I know that that's probably obvious when you look up here and you see me. But um, so I focused on those things. So I quit baseball. And then uh, when I was in high school, basketball was my sport. And by the time I was a senior in high school, um, I realized that this was it. You know, this was the end of my high school career. It's one and done. It only happens once in your lifetime. And so when the spring of my senior year came, I said, you know what? I think I'm going to go out for the baseball team because I remember that I'm pretty good, I was an all-star, and I can, you know, show everyone how it's done. So I went out in the spring and came to the first practice. The manager was throwing batting practice, and it was my turn to hit. And I thought this was going to be great. He was throwing slow pitches. It was the first day of practice. And every single pitch that he threw me, I would swing and I would miss. I mean, over and over and over again. Maybe a foul tip here or there, but essentially I was not able to even make contact. I had a superiority complex, but the reality was I couldn't even make contact with the baseball. I should have remembered that hitting a baseball was one of the most difficult things that you can do in sports. But I thought I was up to the task, and I didn't realize what I truly was. Remember the show American Idol? Uh, young people from all over the country auditioned to become the next Madonna or the next Bono. And there was one judge, Simon Cow, and he would listen to the singers, and he would tell them what? He would tell them the truth about themselves. Some of them had grown up believing that they were great singers, but it became a funny part of the show to hear his comments and to see their worlds crushed, um, sometimes even their families and friends, to hear for the first time that they weren't what they always thought they were. You listen to some of the quotes from Simon. He said this to one singer, poor singer, my advice would be if you want to pursue a career in the music business, don't. This one's even worse. Your facial expressions were ugly. You are a beautiful girl, but you're ugly when you perform. Play it back, watch it, you'll see what I mean. He was brutally honest, and the amazing thing was that some of the singers who truly were horrible singers, it was the very first time they were hearing that they were bad. They've been raised in that generation where everyone gets a trophy, where everyone gets a trophy for participation. They had a superiority complex. 
They had the audacity to think of themselves worthy of being the next American Idol singer. They probably had people all along the way telling them how good they were, holding back maybe at times how bad they are. It's a horrible thing to not know what you are, to have a superiority complex. It kills potential because we don't see our weak spots. How can you improve on your weak spots if you have this complex? When I was in college, I was a piano performance major, and one of the things that we would do is that all of the students of the specific teacher, our teacher, our piano teacher, he would have 15 students, 20 students, and we would all join together once a week, and we would play for each other, and then we would criticize each other. So you're playing the piano, and you're listening to all this criticism, and it was painful, as you can imagine. The most painful part was having to sit and listen to everybody play, not really receiving the criticism. There's that superiority complex. But it would amaze me that certain players who weren't that good would argue with every little point they were given. So feedback would be given by the students, and it was obvious that they needed to hear these things. Someone may offer the tip that you may want to try to feel the harmonies because that's the way that you know a musician's a musician, if they feel each harmonic change, and they would defend themselves, well, I did feel the harmonies, and you don't know what's going on in my heart, and stuff like that. If you could not just play the notes, but you could hear the music inside the notes. I'm, I'm not just playing notes, I'm, I'm definitely feeling each note. And on the other hand, it was remarkable to see the progress that will be made by those who receive criticism. It's a terrible thing to not know what you are, to have a superiority complex, to cut yourself off from seeing blind spots in your life, from not being all God has called and created us to be. And we see this same superiority complex in our culture, don't we? Right now we have this controversy over the NFL players and kneeling during the national anthem and so we have people on one side saying that those people who are against these players, you don't understand that they're standing up for racial inequality and that you must be a racist if you don't feel that way. And then we have others saying it's an abomination for NFL players to kneel during the national anthem and saying, well, I stand. They don't stand, but I do. And all of a sudden, everyone's an activist. When my kids started playing sports and I started going to high school games, I noticed that not too many people, you know, stand at attention and put their hand over their heart while the anthem's being played before the match. And I have my hand over my heart. I'm looking around and, you know, people aren't really uh, reverent the way they should be. So I have a friend, uh, one of the most conservative friends that I know, he fought in two wars and um, he's very disciplined, very devout, and so I texted him right afterwards, and I said, does it bother you that you fought for these rights and people don't put, put their hand over their heart? And he wrote back, and he said, I didn't just fight for people to place their hands over their heart when the national anthem plays, but I also fought for their right not to place their hands over their heart when the national anthem plays. And so everybody has an opinion. Everybody has an opinion where I'm more superior than you. I'm smarter than you. 
and we get pulled into that. But superiority complexes ruin relationships. They divide people when we should be united. They wreak havoc on marriages. They wreak havoc on parenting, on our careers. They hold organizations back from growing. So Paul knew that the default mode of all of us, whether we know it or not, is to have this superiority complex. The book of Romans was written to all of us in all ages of the church, but it was also written to a specific people in history, the Roman Christians. Paul had never been to the Roman church. We have no record of any apostle visiting the Roman church, but it was also, it was also something that he, where he wanted to visit them because they were famous for the gospel in all the world. Look at Romans 1, verse 8. We see Paul say, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. These were people not only famous for the gospel, but these were people who had suffered for the gospel. These were people who had been dispersed from Jerusalem during a great persecution. Acts 8 tells us about that persecution. And Saul approved of his, that Stephen, the first Christian martyr, his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, the same person who wrote Romans was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This Saul was the same Paul who would eventually write Romans. Paul was formerly a terrorist. Paul knew something about superiority complexes because he had one to the nth degree. He had one to the point where he would imprison those who believed differently than he did. The reason the Roman Christians are in Rome in the first place is because of Paul. Because of his persecution. Because of his former persecution of them. These Roman Christians, though, they weren't known for their political power. They weren't known for their moralism. They weren't famous for their programs. They were famous because of nothing but Jesus, because of the gospel. So what would be the very first point that Paul would make to these people? To those already famous for the gospel. After Paul spends the first 17 verses praising Jesus and praising the Romans and pointing them back to Jesus, he spends the rest of chapter 1, as we saw last week, speaking of the sins of the people out there. He continually uses the pronouns in chapter 1. They did this. There. Them. Those people. When he finally circles back to the people he's writing to, in chapter 2, what would be his first point? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, 
practice the very same things. It's striking to me that the very first point Paul makes to the people famous for the gospel, to people who had suffered for the gospel, to people who had shared the gospel at great risk to themselves, the very first point he makes is to make sure they realize they are no better than the people out there. Paul says, know who you are. Know that you're going to stand up at home plate and you're going to swing and miss over and over and over again. Know who you are. Drop the superiority complex. Drop the pride. We are way worse off than we think we are. And that is our default setting, to have this feeling of superiority. I mean, it may not be a blatant thing. We may be a humble person in some ways, but deep within the recesses of our hearts, what is it? We have a superiority complex. Earlier when I was going through some of the different controversial opinions when it comes to the flag, I mean, I mentioned basically all three positions, and maybe in your heart, it's welling up in your heart, you just want to jump out of your seat and Give your opinion on that matter. That's a superiority complex. Paul uses several passages when we come to chapter 3, all from the Old Testament, to drive home this point that none of us should have this superiority complex. That the playing field is equal when it comes to our supposed good works. So let's look at Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Notice in verse 9, what does Paul say? He says that we are under sin. That phrase, or those two words, under sin, Sin. I remember when I was in grade school, we used to play football, and back then you didn't play touch football. You played what? You played tackle football. We had this game, it was called Smear the, you know, that, remember that thing, guys? And what would happen is I mean, you'd have the ball and you would get tackled, and all the guys would just jump on top of the pile, and then you're on the bottom, and you feel like you can't breathe and you feel claustrophobic, and you can't show any of the guys that, because you can't show any weakness, 
But I remember that feeling, that feeling of being under this pile, of being kind of powerless, not able to move, pinned down to the ground. And that's, that's the idea of being under sin. That's what Paul is talking about here, is that we are pinned down, we are under sin. Some of you know that feeling right now. Maybe it's a marriage where things are so bad that you have no idea the way out or the way up. Maybe it's a relationship that's fallen apart. Maybe it's a sin that you continue to struggle against no matter what you do. Maybe it's your faith. Maybe it's wrestling, feeling pinned down under that weight. Paul says we are under sin. We are pinned down. We are trapped under sin. Paul says we are suffocated, unable to breathe because of sin. Paul says none are righteous. Just if someone's not sure about what that means, Paul says not one. None are righteous. No, not one. Paul wants to make sure that all of us know that none are righteous No, not one. None of us. None of our works are righteous. They're not fully righteous. Even one of the church reformers said our damnable good works need to be covered by the blood of the Lamb. Even our good works are marred with badness. Not those people out there only, but the people in here. None are righteous. Not one. Not just the people who sin differently than we do. Us. Church people. None are righteous. No, not one. If you think there's a loophole for you, he makes sure in verse 20 that he paints with the broadest possible brush to include everyone. Look at verse 20 again. He says, by the works of the law, no human being He's making sure that we are all covered, that none of us escape this. In case you think you're exempt, he makes it abundantly clear. If you are a human being, if you are that species, I'm talking to you. One reason why we have a superiority complex is because we read Scripture wrongly. What do I mean by that? Well, we read Romans 1 and 2, and we see, well, I don't struggle with this, I don't struggle with that. Well, this one right here, you know, being patient, I don't really like that one, but I'm kind of patient, at least I showed it sometimes. And Paul says in chapter 2, those who are self-seeking will be judged by your works. If you're self-seeking, if you are not focused on others at all times in your life, in your words, thoughts, and deeds, 100% of the time, Which one of us can stand in that? Which one of us can stand when it comes to our marriages? Not being self-seeking, focused on the other person. Which one of us can stand when it comes to our parents, when it comes to obeying our parents? I mean, the reason why we have this superiority complex is because we believe that our greatest problem is something smaller than it really, truly is. We read passages like Romans 1 and 2, and what do we do? We focus on the sins of the people out there. 
Last week, I was going through Romans 1, and I was just using different examples of some of the sins, and I was unpacking those. I was just plopping down in different spots. And a couple of verses, I, I didn't use those verses, not for any reason, but I didn't use the verses 26 and 27 in chapter 1. That's the verse about women giving up natural relations with women and men giving up natural relationships with men. And, you know, I was going to say this morning, almost sarcastically, I was going to say, you know, last week I skipped over a very relevant passage. Something that's so relevant to our culture. Something that we really need to focus on. Last week, I was going to say sarcastically, but I'm not, I'm just telling you what I was going to say sarcastically. Last week, I skipped over gossip and strife and disobeying parents and things that are actually relevant to most of the people sitting in front of me. And yet we fixate on the people out there, on sins we don't specifically struggle against. Parenthetically, those who come to me for counsel, and there have been quite a few, who struggle with things like same-sex attraction, what I can tell you about that is that in every single case, the person sitting in front of me saying that they're struggling with this sin are broken-hearted, scared, torn apart, confused. Many times they are closer to the kingdom of heaven than some of us are because they're broken. I know not all are like that. But most are. We are great prosecutors when it comes to the sins of others. We're excellent defense attorneys when it comes to our own sins. We have 2020 sharp, laser beamed sight when it comes to other people's sins. And we have blurred vision when it comes to our own sins. That's what Paul is saying. That's a superiority complex that Paul is talking about. I mean, we have to remember, not to belabor the point, but these Roman Christians, these were Jewish Roman Christians. They were the cream of the crop. They were born Jews. They followed all of the law. They followed Moses. They followed the dietary restrictions. They followed all of it. And then on top of that, they became Christians. They followed Jesus as well. So these were the good guys. I mean, these were holy, holy people. And they were known for the gospel. And yet Paul says the default mode of all of us is that we are superior, that we are better. And that is what crushes relationships. Okay, so you may not have a blatant superiority complex. You may be humble. But we can still all have it. Why? Look at verse 26 in Romans chapter 1. Actually, that's not the verse that I'm looking for. Um, that's the verse I just talked about. We see again and again in Romans 1 that it's about the darkness of our hearts. That we suppress the truth because of our hearts. 
we see all through the New Testament that it's not so much about our out- outward actions, although those are important, but it's about our inward motives. It's more about the heart. The superiority complex is rooted in the heart, in the deep recesses. It doesn't always show itself in our words and our actions. It starts in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our motives. We're pretty good at controlling our outward actions. But again and again, Scripture tells us that it's all about our hearts. Jesus told a parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember that parable that he told in Luke? Pharisee, tax collector. The Pharisees were the good guys. The tax collectors were the bad guys. Tax collectors were working with Rome. They were ripping off the people. Nobody liked them. The Pharisees were the people's model. They were very popular with the people. So Jesus tells this parable. He says that a Pharisee and a tax collector go to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, he stands and he prays. And he prays a beautiful prayer about all of his outward actions, which are good actions. He talks about his worship. He talks about his giving. And then he says, but I thank God that I'm not like other people. Especially this tax collector over here. I'm so thankful that I'm not like him. A while back, I was at a gathering of Christians, and the worship service was everything that I personally dislike about Christianity. I do feel they have it wrong. I'm not going to back off on that, of course, because I have a superiority complex. Um, I was listening to the worship and the words of the pastor, and I thought in my heart, I'm just so thankful for, I'm just so thankful for you guys. I'm just so thankful for Reach Church. Let me say it another way. I thought in my heart, I'm so thankful for Reach Church. A little bit different, isn't it? I'm so thankful for what God is doing here at Reach Church. I'm so thankful for nothing but Jesus, and I couldn't wait to get back here and worship with you again. I thought to myself, Lord, thank you for Reach Church. Thank you, Lord, that Reach Church is not like this church. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like them. And then it hit me. The Pharisee had said the same exact thing that I was saying. I wasn't just like the Pharisee in that story. The Pharisee was channeling himself through me. I was the Pharisee from that story. I was that Pharisee. It's about the heart. While I was sitting there, I was smiling, I was singing, I was fellowshipping with others around me, but inside in my heart, I was judging, I was superior, superiority complex, my motives were impure, I was sinning in my thoughts, and that's the greatest challenge that we all have. Most of us can control our outward actions to some extent. We sin, but we keep a lid on it. But it's about the sins of the heart. The secret place sins, the sins of our thoughts, of our motives, those sins that Paul addresses. Judging is the sin of the heart. We may not even say what we're thinking or feeling, but it's in our hearts. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. 
superiority complex is all about the heart. You know, a lot of churches have a sign at the end of their driveway, and it says, you are now entering your mission field. And that's a great sign, that's a great message, because we do need to be sharing our faith, but it's extremely dangerous as well. Why? Because it sends the message that the good guys are in here, and the bad guys are out there. That we are the good guys, and those people out there are the bad guys. Paul is saying, there aren't those people out there. There's only those people in sum, in total, that we are those people. Paul says it clearly. And everything inside us revolts against that. Everything inside of us screams that's not true. I'm not like them. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like them. When the tax collector prayed, he said a simple prayer. A simple prayer of forgiveness. Mercy on me, O Lord. And Jesus said that the tax collector left justified, and the Pharisee did not. Paul's saying that there's not those people out there. We are those people. In other words, maybe we should have signs on the mirrors in the restrooms of churches that says, you are the mission field. That's where the signs should be. You are the mission field. Again, not taking away from that sign. It's rich. But we need to be complete about it because the only way we will drop the superiority complex is by realizing our own desperate need for Jesus. Jesus isn't just for those people out there, but for those of us in here. Jesus isn't just for those who are on the verge of becoming a Christian, for those who are far from God. Jesus is for the church elder. Jesus is for the reach group leader. Jesus is for the choir members. Jesus is for the Sunday school teachers. Jesus is for the pastor. I need Jesus as much, if not more, today than I needed him when I became a Christian when I was four years old. Dropping the superiority complex is what allows us to receive the gospel. The point of Romans 1 and 2 is to show us just how desperate we are. Paul's point in having us look deeply at ourselves is to bring us to the point of looking outside of ourselves for help. We don't want that. We don't really truly want the face of God. We turn our faces away from God because of sin. We turn our faces away. I mean, we may be here on Sundays but what about during the week? What about when the rubber meets the road in relationships, in marriages, and families? What about then? Is it nothing but Jesus then? Or do we turn our faces away? And you know what I mean when I say that. When you see someone, an old friend, someone where there's been a falling out or whatever, you see them in the grocery store, and what happens? You turn your faces away. You make the other person disappear that's what we want to do to God. That's what we want to do to Him. We have to look outside of ourselves and outside of Romans 1 through 3 even to find the answer. Because 
Romans 1 through 3 isn't really truly the gospel. I mean, I said a couple of weeks ago that Romans is 100% gospel, and that was a little bit inaccurate because Romans 1 through 3 isn't truly the gospel. It's really bad news. Gospel is good news. But this is the bad news that requires the gospel. So if we're looking in Romans 1 through 3 for the answer to Romans 1 through 2, then we're going to be pretty disappointed because it's like reading just one paragraph of an email and not having the whole picture or a couple chapters in the middle of a book. Romans 1 through 3 is there to set up Romans 4 through 11. Romans 1 through 3 is the diagnosis of the human race. Romans 4 through 11 is the deliverer of the human race. So we have to look outside of Romans 1 through 3 to find any hope whatsoever. Romans 8, 1 through 4, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and for those with superiority complexes like you and me, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those people like you and like me who have these superiority complexes, he says, look outside of yourself. The gospel isn't dependent on you. And that is good news. The gospel is outside of you and me. And that is good news. It's when we look inside of ourselves that we find bad news, not good news. It's when we compare ourselves to others that we find bad news, not good news. It's when we have superiority complexes that we find bad news, not good news. You know, all we need when it comes to the gospel is need. And those with superiority complexes, we don't have any need. What I needed before I went out for the baseball team was batting instruction. I had need. The people singing for American Idol, what they needed, maybe they don't have any talent whatsoever, but maybe what they needed was a, a vocal coach. They had need. When we look at Romans 1 through 2, we shouldn't be focused on specific sins that are in other people, but on ourselves and see our desperate need for Jesus. Jesus told a parable of the Good Samaritan. And you may or may not know the story. The parable goes something like this. There was a man who's robbed, he's beaten, he's left half dead, he's on the side of the road. And so a priest comes by and doesn't help him out. A Levite comes by, doesn't help him out. And finally a Samaritan, these were known as dogs to the people. You want to talk about racial issues the Jews hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritan walks by, and the Samaritan cares for him. He bandages him up, he gives him food, he puts him up in a hotel, and he leaves his credit card at the hotel and said, anything he needs, just put it 
on my tab. It's known as the Good Samaritan. So what is it that we take from that? We take from that that, well, we need to be like the Good Samaritan, right? I mean, you could preach a sermon on that. The caring for others' physical needs, caring for their emotional needs, caring for their spiritual needs, that we need to be like the Good Samaritan. That's what Jesus meant. But yet, what Jesus truly meant, I believe, is that we aren't like the Good Samaritan because we'll never be like the Good Samaritan. We can never do what the Good Samaritan did. Giving his credit card to the hotel and saying, whatever he needs, pay it. We may give food to someone on the side of the road, but then we drive off and we leave and we're done. The Good Samaritan takes it all the way. We're not the Good Samaritan. We're the needy person who's been robbed and beaten and left half dead, who is in desperate need of Jesus, who is the only Good Samaritan. All we need is need. Those with superiority complexes have no need. I see it all the time in myself, and I see it in others, especially those who have been Christians a long time. A person with a superiority complex doesn't need anything. When it comes to our sin, we're like a homeless person who has nothing. Have you ever imagined what it's like to be homeless? To be a Christian and be homeless? Have you ever imagined what that's like? To not have a family, to not have money, to not have food, to not have dignity, to have nothing but Jesus. We are homeless, all of us, spiritually. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. The only thing that we bring to salvation is the sin that requires salvation. I've said this before, but when I preach, I'm just one beggar showing other beggars where I found bread. Luther used to say that all the time. What about you? Do you understand your deep, desperate need for Jesus? Not just if you've never come to know Jesus, but if you've known him for decades. Do you still have that desperate need for Jesus for every single day? Or do you have a superiority complex? You know, the church has an amazing opportunity in this culture. Unbelievable opportunity in this culture. To be Jesus when you have the left fighting the right. And this person giving their opinion on a flag, and this person coming back at them, every, all of a sudden everybody's an activist. I mean, we have such an amazing opportunity to point people to the only one where every knee will bow one day. And every tongue confess. We're not citizens of this world. We're citizens of another world, of another time, of another place. Do you have that need? 
You know, it's amazing to me when we counsel a couple and there's been adultery in the relationship. It's incredible to me when the one who has been offended forgives the other for adultery. Some of you are sitting here this morning, and that's your story. To forgive for adultery. It just amazes me because adultery usually just cuts the whole cord of a marriage. It's horrible. Yet you forgive, and it's amazing. But think about the forgiveness that Jesus lavishes on all of us. Adulterers. Those who seek after other loves, other idols, other gods, those who have the nerve to adopt a superiority complex, those who have the nerve to judge, those who have the nerve to judge others who sin differently than we do. Think about Jesus on the cross forgiving, not just for adultery, not just one person, but all the sins of the world. All of those sins in Romans 1 and 2. The sins that we can all see in each other and the sins that we can't see. How can we have a superiority complex when we know how much we've been forgiven and we also know how much we've been given? We've been forgiven and we've also been given Christ's righteousness that rightness that he has with God. Do you have that need this morning? Do you have that burning need for Jesus? If you don't know Jesus, are you longing in your heart? Is he calling you right now to make this the last day that you don't have him? If you are someone who's been a Christian for a while, have you forgotten Jesus? Have you forgotten your need? Are you resting on your own holiness and superiority complex? Is Christ enough for you? I mean, is he truly, truly enough for you? Or is it Christ plus something else? Is it Christ plus your superiority complex? Or is Jesus enough? 